0: Hebrews 2020 we see Jesus increment 163 and today we'll be considering a words certain alpha logoi in the new testament as i indicated in our last message and i said in our last message that i dedicate every increment that i speak to our lord jesus christ and We always dedicate ourselves to him for the perception of the word, but this time I do so just as emphatically, only with the addition of a cherished memory of a dearly beloved brother who, one day short of his last birthday on September 6th, entered into the presence of our Savior, the immediate presence of Christ to a state which is indescribably better than this his name is Ron Diamond and some of you may know him he and his beloved wife Tammy were in this ministry and listened to this word quietly and confidently for 39 years they were part of our Blessed Phalanx, our little flock. It was said, and Ron had to deal for quite a while with serious illness and cancer in his last days. It was said by one of his professional caretakers that they had never seen a man with such peace, a more peaceful person. Sometimes we say that someone was at peace when they passed into the presence of the Lord. Well, he was at peace all the while waiting to go into the presence of the Lord. Ron was one of those quiet and confident servants, unassuming and not wished to be seen He and Tammy are both under-the-radar people by their own admission. And my heart has been full of this couple ever since we have been praying for his recovery and praying for his strengthening and praying for Tammy's strength. And again, the Lord's voice calling him home was louder than our voices that caused him to recover, not this time. I believe, and I've said this before, that a sequel is being written to the catalog of faith exemplars and heroes that's found in Hebrews 11. I believe that Ron is in that catalog and will be written up in that sequel to Hebrews 11. And so will you, Tammy. You too were a part of the apostolate, those upon whom the Spirit has come, and who bore witness to Jesus wherever you went. Ron rolled with the punches. He rolled with the changes that came in our ministry, and there were many because we have a moving viewpoint. We're not a staid church. Our attention's been stayed on Christ, but our doctrines have evolved, and our hope has grown, and our horizon of hope has expanded greatly. And Ron went with that. And when he went into the presence of the Lord, he died in hope and with that full scope of hope in his heart for all of humanity. And I have great admiration for that. It's sobering to realize <clears throat> that here's another soldier, a fellow soldier who's fought the good fight. A fellow runner who's run this course. A fellow faith-filled believer who's kept the faith and there's therefore for him a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the faithful judge will put upon his head and we'll all be at that ceremony and so it's been my pleasure and my pain <clears throat> over the course of these past 40 years, and then some, to celebrate with many believers in face-to-face communion or in communion in the word from a distance, but also to celebrate the passage of many Out of this land into the land of fulfilled promise. I'm speaking slowly today because I'm choosing my words about a chosen servant of Christ. We'll see you soon, Ron. Our subject today is A words. A words. From the Greek letter alpha, we could also call them alpha logoi words that begin with A, in the New Testament, each of which is descriptive in its own way of the hope that we have before us, and in a way, our message or increment is a continuation of an anatomy of hope, and it's a continuation of our meditation on the promises of God. We've looked at these A words before. And I can't remember exactly what increment it was, and I know in previous series. But it's important to review and amplify them. Each one of them would merit, I think, a book as big as the book, The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, the masterpiece of Valeria Ramelli, which was circa 800 pages and well worth reading. And I did read it. And it's in my heart. And speaking of that, a word which has gained some popularity, and I'm not going to write all these up on this board because they're in print, and you'll see them in the printed form of this message. A word which has gained some popularity of late is apocatastasis, an A word. More precisely, it is apocatastasios panton as it's found in Acts 3.21 in the Greek text. It means universal restoration. Literally, the restoration of all things. The patristic theologians of the first few centuries of what is called church history made much of this Christian doctrine, and it is a Christian doctrine. Alaria Ramelli has produced a masterpiece on the subject of apocatastasis in the patristic theologians, especially Origen and those who followed him. And her masterpiece reflects 16 years of research. What is perhaps most remarkable about the apocatastasis is that God spoke of it univocally, in all the holy prophets from the very beginning of prophecy. Prophecy as a phenomenon and then as a vocation and call of God. That the mouth of God spoke through all the prophets from time immemorial. It's amazing the connection of Hebrews 1.1 with Acts 3.21. That the mouth of God spoke through and in all the prophets about this universal restoration and that the prophets also spoke of the Messiah who would enter his glory through suffering, Luke twenty four twenty six and 27, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, Hebrews 2, 9, and 10, says very plainly that the restoration of all things is inextricably linked to the death by crucifixion and the exaltation via resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Christ. Anakephaliao. Another A word, one that I even prefer over apokatastasis. Comes from Ephesians 1.10. It's also known as the anakephaliosis pantone. There's that word pantone again, everything without exception. All beings without exception. All things without exception. This A word describes that which Irenaeus called the recapitulation. It identifies the mystery of God's will in Ephesians 1.9. Also known as his great intention in Isaiah 9.5, Septuagint Version. God intends not only to gather up all things under the headship of his Son, his beloved, as he's called in Ephesians 1.6, but he also wills for his Son to comprise all things in the heavens and on earth, Ephesians 1.10 and 4.10. This doctrine usually gets very little attention by scholars and theologians, Bible study leaders, People on TV. With the notable exception of Lonergan, of course, he rightly saw this as the key to all Pauline doctrine. Paul didn't speak of this universal recapitulation apart from the redemption, another A word, apolutrosis, that is by the blood of Christ in Ephesians 1.7. Notice the proximity of 1-7 with 110 of Ephesians. In fact, apolutrosis is another of the A words that has universal connotation in the New Testament. It's usually translated as redemption. Tes apolutrosis tes en Christu Jesu. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus in Romans 3.24 includes the redemption of the body, the human body, in Ephesians 4.30, in connection with the liberation of all of creation. That is the cosmos, in Romans 8.19-23. So when you see redemption, or tes apolotros eos, tes en Christu yesu you know that it has a universal connotation as well as an individual, personal, and particular one. Tes apolotrosios, tais in Christo Jesu, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, is also known as aeonion, a word we're going to look at again soon, word that sometimes translates as forever and sometimes it should be. Sometimes it means to an age. Sometimes it means from another world Aonion lutrosen another a word if you put the phrase together in Hebrews 9:12 eternal redemption Moltmann expresses his understanding of redemption as the completion of creation in his book called Jesus Christ for today's world which i read a couple times i think on the kindle edition Location 1267 to 1269, which reads like this The redemption of the world is for us indivisibly one with the perfecting of creation, with the establishment of the unity which nothing more prevents, which is no longer controverted, and which is realized in all the protean variety of the world. Redemption is one with the kingdom of God in its fulfillment. You'll see that, as a result of this, that the, many of the A words are different features of the same thing or sometimes mean and indicate or denote the same thing. C.E. Rolt, R-O-L-T, shows a similar understanding as Moltman in his book called The World's Redemption. On page 265, thus the world's process, the world process is a creation and it is a redemption. The two words mean precisely the same things when applied to God's action upon and in the universe. C.E. Rolt, one witness, Jürgen Moltmann, another witness, The scriptures, certainly, a thousand witnesses. It is difficult to successfully contradict the idea that redemption is one with creation, especially given that God declares the end of his redemptive purpose by declaring, Look, I am making everything new. And cannot this divine making of all things new be called anakinosis? Renewal? Yes, it can. I gave a preview for the following section in a recent text. Anachinosis, therefore, is another A word that has both universal and particular connotations. The renewal of all creation macrocosmically in future world is anticipated by the renewal, anachinosis, of our minds microcosmically in Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2 says, Don't be conformed to this age, to aoni tuto. This is a transient age, an ending age, not a forever age that we're in now. In Galatians 1.4, Paul describes this age as this present evil age, to aeonos to an poneru, an evil age. Evil by its very essence is transient. In fact, it's really non-subsistent. So Paul describes this age in Galatians 1.4 as this present evil age from which it is God's will that we are rescued. In fact, Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from it, says Galatians 1.4. The rescue from this age includes no longer being conformed to this evil age in our mentality and our intentionality. It's like the exodus from Egypt where you're no longer conformed to slavery but conformed to freedom. And that's where Romans 12:2 comes in and says don't be conformed to this evil transient aeon. I put evil and transient in a parenthesis or in brackets because it defines what this age is. Don't be conformed to this aeon. And the context it means by giving evil for evil. Insult for insult. Etc. Instead, be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking. The making new of our way of thinking means conformity of our mentality and intentionality to the age to come, which is a great liberation. The renewal of our minds is the conformity of our thinking and expectation away from this evil age to the age to come, in future world. That doesn't mean you can't have expectations of divine good in this world. It means that our ultimate confidence and our ultimate expectation is toward future world. We see Jesus there already, says Hebrews 6.20. Orientation to future world is occupation with Christ, who is there and who gives future world its shape and form and character. The renewal of our minds is congruent with and coetaneous with the putting off of the old self, the putting on of the new self. Let me say that again. The renewal of our minds is congruent with and coetaneous with the putting on of the new self the attentiveness of the new and true self is directed toward the coming age to future world. This is the essential element of the anatomy of hope. Hope itself is orientation to future world without relinquishing our this-worldly responsibilities. The old self is all about this old age, even when it thinks it's all about new things, innovations, improvements on the old, even when people of this age presume to be evolving and much smarter than people of former generations. Our generation is in danger of becoming a horde of barbarians with sophisticated technology. Other A words that help to give shape and form to our vision of future world include anapsukios anapsukios. that's A-N-A-P-S-U-C-H-E-O-S, because I no doubt mispronounced it. That's found in Acts 3.19, pretty much adjacent to 3.21, where we have apocatastasis. Anapsuchios means refreshment. Peter speaks of the times of refreshment that will come from the presence of the Lord. This word is related to apocatastasios panton in Acts 3.21, which Peter, Peter speaks of practically in the same breath. The presence of the Lord brings times of refreshment, and those times of refreshment mean the salvation that comes with Christ in his second appearance. In Hebrews 9.28. He comes with salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's a whole lot of people waiting for him. That don't know they're waiting for him. Apokatalaxi tapanta. Is a phrase. Which is really an a, alpha logos. Apokatalaxi tapanta. Colossians 1.20. This is the reconciliation of all things, and it speaks of in heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible. Those who insist that there's no such concept of universal reconciliation in the Bible have to explain what Paul means by using the term the reconciliation of all things. Universal reconciliation is made possible only by the peace that God made by the blood of the cross of the son of his love. The blood of the cross, Colossians one twenty, of the son of his love, Colossians 1.12. This act of universal reconciliation is an achievement of divine love. There's a thesis for you. This act of universal reconciliation is an achievement of divine love. Ancient and medieval Christian theologians surmised about love, and I think rightly so, and biblically documented, that the lover is in the beloved, and vice versa. I and you, and you and me, Jesus said to his disciples, my father in me, and I and my father, and you in me, and I in you. The lover is in the beloved when someone is in love. The lover is in the beloved, and the beloved is in the lover. God the Father is the lover of his Son, the beloved. And so God the Father is in the Son. This isn't just a mystical or metaphysical truth. This is a truth of love. The beloved Son loves God the Father and is in the Father. God the Father and God the Son love us and so they are in us and we in them in the communion of the Holy Spirit. So to gather everything together in Christ, God's beloved, is to make everything God's beloved. It's to make all things the objects of the infinite and unrestricted love of God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, the lover, the divine lover, is in the beloved, the divinely loved. And the beloved, the divinely loved, is in the divine lover. And so, God will be all in all. And all will be in God in love. All will be God's beloved when all is comprised of his Son. And so all will be in God as God's beloved, and God will be in all. Neither can this act of love be detached from the act of self-giving love by which God's Son became the expiation of the sins of the world. 1 John 4.8c 4, through 4.10 says, God is love. By this God's love was revealed among us, that the only eternally begotten Son was sent by God into the world so that we would live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be the expiation of our sins. How about another A word, another alpha logos, Anastasis? First Corinthians fifteen twenty to twenty-eight, most famously perhaps, and fifteen fifty-one to fifty-eight, anastasis means resurrection. It's an essential element of future world. The word, again, anastasis means resurrection. Jesus called the human inhabitants of future world the sons of the resurrection tes anastasios huioi in Luke twenty thirty six. And he distinguished them from the sons of this age, as he called them, Hui tu eonas tuto tuto in Luke twenty thirty four. Much can be said there. And we've written and spoken recently on resurrection. I don't want to leave the topic, but let's go to another A word, apocalypsis, where we get our word apocalypse. It's another profoundly significant A word, alpha logos. Apocalypse, when used in modern parlance, usually carries with it the foreboding of a worldwide disaster. And this idea is not entirely wrong. Listen carefully. It's not entirely wrong because the universally saving apocalypse of Jesus Christ also spells the catastrophic end of the present evil age. Regarding the negative connotation of apocalypse, Moltmann again wrote, quote, just because it is the consummation of the creation and God's history of promise it is also the end of the corrupted world time of sin and death, injustice and violence. So apocalypse, apocalypse, isn't the end of the world. No, it's the end of the corrupted world time of sin and death and injustice and violence. The positive connotation of apocalypse carries much more weight in the scriptures, of course, and, I would argue that even that last part is a positive thing, the end of a corrupted world time of sin and death and justice and violence. That's a good thing. The positive connotation of apocalypse, though, the overtly positive, carries more weight in the Scripture. And I agree again with Moltmann, who also wrote very simply, apocalypse means the restoration of all things. That's pretty profound. It took me years to discover that by a study of the scriptures. But that's it. Apocalypse means the restoration of all things. So apocalypsis is apocatastasis ultimately. He correctly connects, in his book on hope, he correctly connects apocalypse with apocatastasis and, in fact, with anastasis. He didn't call them A words. That's what I'm doing. Remember, I'm connecting all these A words and some other words too that we're going to close with to indicate that for which we hope. These A words or alpha logoi are integrally linked to our anatomy of hope and our our meditation on the promises of God. And as we'll see on our exposition or hebrews exposition of two immutable things coming up because all things are to be gathered up in christ our hope is jesus very simply first peter 1 7 get these 1 7s together in your mind first peter 1 7 correlates well with revelation 1 7 first peter 1 7 says this so that the authenticity of your faith, speaking of the necessity of tests and trials in this life, so that the authenticity of your faith, more valuable than very precious but perishable gold, though refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now that this apocalypse of Jesus Christ is universal, and universally perceived, is indicated by Revelation 1.7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Now you see, he comes with clouds, including the cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12.1. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even the eyes of those who impaled him. And all The families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. Now there's a mourning that leads to death. But there's also a mourning that leads to salvation. This is speaking of a mourning and a grief, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and a grief that leads to salvation. That all the families of the earth will mourn for him means that there will be in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ a momentary kind of grieving over the crucified Christ that will result in salvation in which there will be no more grief forever. The principle is found in 2 Corinthians 7.10. The unspeakable grief which is likened to that of the loss of one's only son or only daughter or only child. The unspeakable grief of the crucifixion of Jesus, where he became the expiation of the sins of the world, leads to the surpassing and indescribable joy of the Lord, which he shares with all of humanity in resurrection. Anastasis. There is no universal apocalypse and no universal anakephaliosis without anastasis, resurrection. And there is no resurrection without the death of the cross endured by our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no redemptive and reconciling death of the cross endured by Jesus without his incarnation, his becoming like his siblings in every way except for sin. And there is no incarnation without the pre-existence of the Son as the only eternally begotten of God, whom God eternally begot in his love. Now, of God's love in the context of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, which we've referred to a couple of times, and very germane to our present subject, Marcus Barth, the son of Karl Barth, wrote, Quote, the eternal concreteness and validity of the full blessing of man is vouchsafed by God's eternal love of the Son. The Son is the eternal reality, and he is therefore the reliable demonstration in history of a love which is not accidental but essential to God. The eternal presence of the Son at the Father's side is the substance and ground of the affirmation that love is of God's essence. Love can by no means be separated from God or be identified with a passing whim, a retractable decision, a historical coincidence. God is love. This is the essence of Christ's pre-existence. Quite a little paragraph or semi-paragraph in Marcus Barth who wrote a two-volume commentary on Ephesians. Now, here's a thesis, a prophetic thesis, one that I've written. It is precisely at the moment of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ the apocalypse of unrestricted love, that the faith of billions of people will be approved, and the unbelief of billions of others will be reproved, and their unbelief yield to faith. That'll be in bold and print in bold print in your upcoming printed version, and I always urge, if you can, read the notes, read the notes, read the notes. The restoration of all things can be viewed as an act of divine sanctification, another A word, hagiasmos, soft breathing, A-G-I-A-S-O-M-O-S, sanctification, hagiasmos. God has made Jesus to be sanctification for us, says 1 Corinthians 1.30, Consequently, when all things are comprised of him, the universe will be sanctified by God, consecrated, made holy, and forever separated from defilement. And that means the restoration of all things and the redemption of the universe and of history will never be subject to another insurgence of evil. To these A words, of which we have only given scant treatment here, And that's when (laughs) my life's over. I'm going to look over all the things I've taught and say, well, I sure gave scant treatment to your grace and to your son. But to these A words of which we have only given scant treatment may be added other terms that don't happen to begin with the Greek letter alpha. Among them, as we've seen, are palingenesia, P-A-L-I-N-G-E-N-E-S-I-A, found in Matthew 19.28, where Jesus universalizes the subject of regeneration. In fact, however, palingenesia, if you want to move it over into the English language, it can be an A word if we translate literally into English because the word literally means again genesis. Palin, again, P-A-L-I-N, genesis. Again Genesis. In addition, Hebrews has the word diothorsios or dio thorsis in another inflection, Hebrews 9.10, which is a time of rectification. That's future world seen as a setting of everything right by making all things new. This again Genesis is related to the tabernacle in heaven that is not of this creation, so the again Genesis is a new creation of all things, which involves a rectification, or we could even say a justification of all things. Now we're prepared to add another A word to our list. This one I will write up here, and it will be also in print. It appears in two separate inflections, in the closing paragraph of Hebrews 6. It's an adjective this time, and it looks like this. A, soft breathing, so it's an alpha word. M-E-T-A-T-H-E-T-O-N. <clears throat> That's one inflection. A metatheton. Oh, I'm sorry. The accent is over here on this A, the second alpha. Amatathaton. Amatathaton. Basically, not capable of movement or change. Amatathaton. Now, there's another inflection or affix at the end of the verse, and it looks like this later on. This is in 617. This is in 618. Amatathaton. That tone this time, Omega O instead of Omicron O, different inflection, because this time it's describing or modifying what we call two things, two unchangeable things. Amitatheton, the first one, describes a, the purpose of God, unchanging immutable. The second with a slightly different inflection, describes two things, pragmatone, two things, those things that we're going to see what they are, two immutable things. My point being that to these A words that we've looked at throughout our message, and there are probably others, in fact, I'm almost sure there are others, to these A words, be added this word, this adjective, amatathaton or amatathatone amatathaton in 617 amatathaton in 618 why am i adding these to our a words and why do they have importance with regard to the subject of anakephaliosis panton etc or universal restoration or recapitulation well, in Hebrews 6.17, the adjective describes the unstoppable purpose of God. bules, tais bules. That means resolution or determination. And I would even translate it as unstoppable purpose. It's the resolution of God's great and gracious intention. In 6.18, amatathaton is a modifier of two things. Duo pragmaton, duo pragmaton, two things. These two immutable things, amatatheton things, duo pragmaton amatatheton, are one, the oath fortified promise, which is unchangeable, announced Abraham by God, and two, the oath fortified oracle pronounced by God, the Father, to Jesus, his Son. I'll say that again. The two immutable things, dua, pragmaton. Now, we're going to go back and deal with, run the iron over the fabric one more time, and we'll deal with verses previous to this, 615, 16, 17, etc. But these two immutable things are, one, the oath-fortified promise announced to Abraham by God, and two, the oath-fortified oracle pronounced by God the Father, to Jesus, his son. So Amatathaton, with the Omega O, adds significantly to our doctrine of anakephaliosis Pantone, which is the restoration or the recapitulation of all things, by strongly stressing the immutable certainty of that recapitulation of all things in Jesus Christ. Amatathaton for the immutable purpose of God, Amatethaton, describing two immutable things, an oath-fortified promise and an oath-fortified oracle, both together render, you can't say it, in other words, any more strongly that there will be a restoration of all things, a universal reconciliation of all things. And Amatathaton is kind of like the exclamation point or two exclamation points at the end of the rest of our A words. So this kind of certainty is emphasized by divine oaths, not any old oaths. There's lots of oaths that people shouldn't swear at all, and they do so. I swear to God. Those are things Jesus doesn't really dig people saying because they try to make something of, themselves by swearing James five eleven says don't swear at all Matthew five thirty four says don't swear by the earth or by the heavens or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king you don't take oaths lightly now there's times when we have to take them such as in court or before a pastor or a judge or the ship go the ship captain of the love boat in marriage vows but you don't take them lightly. Divine oaths especially can't be taken lightly, and the oaths that we're talking about are divine oaths by which God puts exclamation marks at the end of his promises and signs his name to them, as it were. Similar stress is placed on the certainty of God's purpose in such passages in Deutero-Isaiah, such as Isaiah 45, 17 to 25, and Isaiah 46, 10. And I'm tempted to deal with these, not in this increment, but in, in a future increment, Isaiah 45, 17 to 25, and Isaiah 46, 10. The passage that links most intimately with and perhaps most in close association with the New Testament is what we call deutero Isaiah a passage between Isaiah 40 through 55 and in there we have the famous suffering servant psalms etc or the suffering servant songs and so i may be looking at Isaiah 45:17 to 25 and Isaiah 46:10 inasmuch as they emphasize the certitude the certainty leading to immovability on the part of those who hold these hopes about the universal restoration and about the certainty of future world. Father, we recognize today with a certain sobriety and a certain solemnity and a certain seriousness, especially as we see passing from this world loved ones, fellow believers, fellow soldiers, fellow citizens of our nation, fellow human beings, we take with great solemnity your words and the challenge to hold on to the hope, which is what Ron Diamond did, because we consider the outcome of people who have spent decades of their life holding this hope and having this expectation. And the realization of this expectation is all the more glorious for those who waited for it intensely. And so, Father, with this intensity, we pray that you will increase our intensity of anticipation, speaking of A-words, increase our anticipation of coming world, future world. But give us the grace not to abandon the responsibilities you've given to us in this world as we wait. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and we pray, Father, that you, who are rightly called the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, that you will deliver your mercies and your comfort to those who have recently experienced the loss by departure from this life of their loved ones and give them the confidence, ever-growing confidence, that there will be a reunion in future world and that there will never again be an onset of death or an insurgence of evil or a need ever again to say, Goodbye. But we can say to this message today, Amen.